Welcome to episode three of What's Her Face with her friend Kate Brewer. Kate was born in Seattle and raised in Southeast Asia. Kate is a writer, an award-winning filmmaker, avid traveler, and macaroni and cheese connoisseur. Since graduating from Florida State University Film School in 2007, she's lived and worked around the world. Her first feature film, a documentary on forced and child marriage in the U.S., entitled Knots, A Forced Marriage Story, won Best Documentary Feature at the Manchester International Film Festival in 2020. Her short psychological horror film, The Murder King, premiered at the Omaha Film Festival in 2020. She has presented a TEDx talk on the subject of her documentary, published her first YA novel, I Heart Vampires, under the pen name Siona McCabe, has had multiple short stories published, and is currently developing The Murder King into a feature. She enjoys shenanigans, learning languages, snow surfing, and French Malbec with good friends. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much. Hi, it's so happy to have you. I'm so happy to have you in front of us right so now. So happy. Oh, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so do we want to jump into what snow surfing is? Yeah, can you please tell us about snow surfing? I'm so confused. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's just lack of having a sled. But then, you know, when your husband has an old surfboard that's not being used, you don't live near the beach, mm. you can just cut the fins off and then use that. It's pretty fun, pretty effective. <laughs> so uh, how are you riding it? Like belly first? But there were, there were a but. lot of ways. <laughs> but. Um, I found it difficult to stay standing a lot of the time, so I ended up going, you know, head first, belly first a lot of the time. Also depends on how deep the snow is, but yeah. Cool. Where were you when you did that? Uh, that was Washington, D.C. That was, or, or just outside in Northern Virginia when we were living there before we moved here to Oma. On the bright side, you live in a great place called Council Bluffs, where I also hail from, and I know there's plenty of fantastic sledding opportunities in that area, so just just wait a little bit. You'll find one. Oh, hell yeah. We actually have a great um, (laughs) alley right behind our house, and when the big snow came, I think it was two years ago now. The big snow. The big snow, (laughs) as if there's only one ever. (laughs) The big one. Yeah, we uh, went out with... I think we were drinking vermouth because it was all we had in the house at 11 a.m. and just (laughs) surfing down the alley. Pretty great. I can respect (laughs) these decisions that you and Ben, this is good. It's good times. (laughs) So this brings up a good point. How long have you lived in this area? So we moved here in August 2017. So I guess that makes it three years. Okay. I'm bad at math, but I'm I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's that's three. I think that's coming up on three. I'll bring my calculator out. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been amazing, honestly. I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to the Midwest before. I lived a lot of places, but you know, then Ben said, "Hey, we got orders to move to Omaha." I was like, "Cool, never been there. Let's see what it's like." <laughs> I think you guys have found a really wonderful community. Um, like I mentioned before, you live in Council Bluffs, Iowa. For those who are listening and are unfamiliar, it's very close to Omaha, um, but it's small and sweet. And you guys found this like adorable historical house that has this fantastic wraparound pr- like uh, porch. I almost said fridge, <laughs> not a wraparound fridge. That would be pretty incredible, though. Imagine how much <laughs> you could store in there. <laughs> it's so hot out. We need wraparound fridges. Right? Just chill the whole house and have a lot of meat at the same time. <laughs> oh, goodness. No, it's all good. We, um, Yeah, we really lucked out finding that house and what came with the house was also the neighborhood, which was also fantastic. Everyone was just really welcoming, a really cool, uh, really, yeah. We, we would randomly find baskets of cookies or fresh tomatoes from someone's garden. And like at one point, cucumbers started showing up just on our porch step. Not and wrapped in anything? Just no, just fresh cucumbers. Raw so cucumbers. We, we went around for a while trying to figure out Who's the cucumber fairy? <laughs> Who keeps giving us these delicious cucumbers? That is so cool. Was it Gavin? I feel like it might be Gavin. It would make sense for it to be Gavin, but actually it was another neighbor named Tom. Oh, that's great. <laughs> At least you found out who the culprit was. Yeah. No, Kate has this fantastic child's neighbor who I think is just so completely unafraid of conversations with strangers that I am kind of in awe of her. 
Oh, goodness. Yeah, I told her once that she that I had two stomachs, one regular <laughs> one and one popcorn stomach. And I had this flight of fancy that, oh, maybe one day she'll go into school in a biology class and be like, excuse me, um, I know someone with two stomachs, so maybe you should revise. <laughs> and then coming back to me and going, that was bullshit. <laughs> one could only hope that would actually happen. <laughs> I know. I have, I have a lot of flights of fancy like that. <laughs> so speaking of flights of fancy, uh, you are an incredibly creative individual, and I know that you write a lot of scripts. Can we talk about some of what you're writing currently, some of what you've written? Uh, yeah, of course, and thank you. That's very, that's very <laughs> sweet and kind of you to say. <laughs> what do you want to know? So should we talk, I guess, jump into some of your horror writing? Sure. Talk a little bit about that background? Yeah, I love horror. <laughs> How did you find the genre? Uh, so I, I've i always been really scared by horror movies, very easily <laughs> scared, to the point where my friends really enjoy just jumping out from behind doorways and watching me scream. I mean, in the middle of the day. It doesn't I even mean, need to be. I can relate to that. I'm a very jumpy person. <laughs> Welcome. So I wasn't really into them for a long time, and especially since I have extremely violent, horrible nightmares. And I have always had these terrible nightmares ever since I was a kid. And no, I've, I've looked back. I've tried to find some sort of hidden trauma. There's no box on the shelf there. It's just I've always had these weird, awful dreams. And for the longest time, I just tried to avoid thinking about them. And then one day I told my younger brother, Patrick, about the most horrible dream I had ever had. And I told only him because I was so disturbed that I could come up with these images or these things in my head um, and when I was done confessing to him and feeling like oh my god am I a horrible person because I made this in my head what does this say about me he just looked at me and goes Kate you should just be making films out of these <laughs> what are you doing so how long did it take you from having that dream to then writing your first horror script it was still a few years mm -hmm. it was a few years and to really embrace it but I started watching more horror movies mm -hmm. and I noticed that when I watch horror movies, I'm less likely to have those bad dreams. There's wow, almost really? like this purging effect. <laughs> Interesting. You feel like it would just kind of trigger all of that. I mean, right. at least that's how it works for me. Not that it's all the same, but interesting. I, I think about it like those, those valves. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what I'm <laughs> talking about. I don't know what the device is, but when you, you know, someone's having a collapsed lung, you reinflate it and you, there's take the pressure off. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I see horror films for my brain. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. So can you tell us about some of your favorite horror films? I know we've had this discussion in the past, but. Oh, yes. Um, so some of my favorites, just to go through uh, The Witch, The Shining, It Follows, The Thing, Raw. I'm actually. I'm really obsessed with the French horror film Raw because it's. It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Um, and it's by this amazing female French director, and I'm gonna really fuck up her name here. Uh, Julia Ducourneau, I think. Ducourneau, something like that. That sounds convincing that sounds really to me. Good. I'm terrible with <laughs> names, so Julia, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, the film is sort of one part coming of age, one part family dynamics, and one part cannibalism, and all parts French. So <laughs> and all parts French. Kind of brilliant in every way. <laughs> wow. Um, so going back to this discussion with your brother, was that before, after, or I guess during film school, or is there something that, that like led you to film school? So I think that conversation with my brother was after film school. I don't remember where I was exactly. I might have been living in L.A. at the time or maybe Morocco. <laughs> I don't recall. But uh, I had always been drawn to films and filmmaking and writing, and I wasn't entirely sure which direction I wanted to go with it when it came time to go to college. But then, um, I mean, I, I made my very first film at the tender age of nine. Oh, my gosh, with that's adorable. <laughs> with which camera? Well, I don't know, because my dad basically <laughs> did the whole thing. I, I quote, wrote the script, uh, nice. and uh, he was like, okay, now you need to make storyboards. So I made some doodle scratches that, um, you know, was supposed to tell a story about alien pancakes that 
invade the planet Earth looking for maple syrup, and everybody's afraid of them, but really they're just misunderstood. Honestly, I a lot of your this. scripts are making sense now to me. <laughs> if this is the origin story of Kate, I think I'm getting it now. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah, a brilliant treatise entitled, entitled Attack of the Alien Pancakes. I want to watch this. <laughs> Did your father have a background in filmmaking? He did some film when he was young, but he mostly focused on writing. And then he also got a degree in Hindi, and he has been working in the field of NGOs and addressing human rights, labor rights, and civil rights around the world for the entire time I've known him. <laughs> so, yeah, ever since I've been alive. Since your introduction at birth. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, how I got into film. I mean, he was always really encouraging. And uh, when I made the choice to go to film school, my parents were thankfully really supportive. And I remember at one point when I told my dad that I wanted to be a writer, he goes, you know that it's going to be extremely hard. You're going to face a ton of rejection and you might never make much money at all. You're going to struggle a lot. Right. And I went, yep. And he goes, great, I support you 100%. Go oh. for it. <laughs> wow, goosebumps. <laughs> I so love cool. the honesty, though. I know when I decided to leave school to be an artist, mm -mm. <laughs> the support was there, but it was just met with a lot of questions. And so <laughs> that's really sweet that your dad encouraged you in that way. Yeah, my, my parents are still a massive support in everything. I mean, Knotts would not have been able to get where it is without them, for sure. Do you think that um, your interest in producing knots, which we will shortly talk about, comes from your dad's social work in all these other countries, or was it something you found by yourself? Oh, I don't think I found it by myself. I think I was really fortunate and really privileged to be uh, brought up in that environment and surrounded by just a whole diverse range of people doing that kind of work and to see the impact that it has but also to see what people are facing day to day um, year to year and how long change can take sometimes and how dedicated you really have to be and and that you kind of have to jump all in and be all in for it and so I've always really admired that with my dad I never actually planned to make a documentary I think probably some part of me felt like it was too hard or you know imposter syndrome or oh you know what's what's this issue that I'm gonna dive all in kind of thing so I came to knots when I started working at a nonprofit called the Tahare Justice Center and it was at a point in my life where I had been really actively trying to shift my focus from just narrative to using my storytelling skills for advocacy. And so I started working for this nonprofit that addresses gender-based violence. And that's when I found out that forced and child marriage is still a huge problem in the U.S. And I hadn't been aware of that. And I thought of myself as a relatively well-informed person. So I was really kind of taken aback and started thinking about, well, shit, I... Who even who even realizes this is going on? Um, and then I would see you know little pieces pop up in the news here and there, and but really um, got to a point where I realized I had a platform um, I that I could create to help others tell their stories so that it would be better understood because it is a very complex and nuanced issue that I feel like merits hearing survivors' voices and really merits understanding what their experience is and invite people to understand what their experience is. And once people have that, I feel like it's a lot easier for everyone to jump on board and say, yeah, we should definitely not do this anymore. <laughs> right. I knew nothing about it until we met and you started talking about it and then started talking about making this film. Um, can you go into, I guess, some of what it was that you were learning about at that time? what you were working on and how you were working with these people? Yeah, well, to start with, I didn't even realize that child marriage was still legal in the United States through a series of loopholes that existed at the time in every single state. And at the time, I mean, I started this job in 2015. So uh, and there were minimal studies just probing this issue. But what what was found in those studies was overwhelmingly that it 
when underage marriages happened, they were mostly younger girls married to significantly older men. That was the majority of them. It's not like a Romeo and Juliet type situation <laughs> for the most part. But also then I started getting into the studies about the effect that marriage under age 18 has, even if you are talking about two people who are 16 or 16 and 17, and the tremendous uh, negative impact that that has, especially on the girls' lives, and including the massive increased rates of uh, poverty, of uh, being at risk for domestic violence, for um, all kinds of mental and physical health issues. I mean, it's sort of a laundry list of horrors and trauma that come along with not only being forced into marriage, but being forced into marriage, uh, especially as a child. Because the other thing, <laughs> and this loops back into the whole horror <laughs> of it all, I actually think there's kind of a, uh, a little bit of play between horror and, and documentary in the film, but children who are forced into marriage cannot get out. So let's say even a 17-year-old or 16-year-old is forced into a marriage with an adult man. Uh, she can't apply for a divorce because that's only something that people who are 18 and over are allowed to do. She can't go to most domestic wow. violence shelters because they would be considered a runaway and return to her guardian, which would be her abusive husband. Right. She can't even apply for a protection order. I mean, she doesn't, uh, likely in the vast majority of these situations, you know, doesn't have her own bank account income. Uh, usually it's the end of her schooling and um, a whole host of other terrible things. So she's really, truly trapped. And that learning that, I think, was one of the big pieces and... Um, also learning how misunderstood this issue is. Kind of like when we started talking about domestic violence and you have a lot of people who are saying, well, why doesn't she just leave? Well, oh, if only it was that easy. <laughs> if only. Like it's a lot more complicated mm -hmm. than that. And so with forced marriage and child marriage, you know, sometimes you get the question, well, if someone's an adult, an adult if they're 18 years old and forced into marriage, can't they just say no or walk away? That was the whole impetus for making the film because I feel like, even making the film, we had to cut down from, you know, over 100 hours into 77 minutes. And that was tough enough because there are so many pieces to these survivor stories and so many nuances. But even to just give people a glimpse of what this experience is like, hopefully then we can move on from the question of, oh, well, it should be just this easy to X, Y, or Z. You know, we can actually start to address the issue. So how were you introduced to these survivors? What was the process and how did, like, how did that plan pan out? So I worked with the Tahrir Justice Center. So I left my full-time job there in order to make this documentary. I'm like, let me quit my <laughs> job and throw all my savings into making a documentary. This is going to be great. <laughs> um, well, it is great. <laughs> you did a fantastic job. And your dad oh, did you. warn you. <laughs> he did, yes. <laughs> thank you. on uh, Yeah, true on both counts. Um, so... I actually worked with um, my colleagues at the Tahari Justice Center to identify survivors who were in a safe and stable enough place, who had enough support system and structure in place, and who actively were talking about wanting to share their stories to help the movement to end child marriage and forced marriage in the United States and to you know be advocates themselves because that was our main priority in this entire process is limit re-traumatization as much as possible and make sure that the agency remains with the survivors who are sharing their stories. So that was something we were, we were really conscientious about. And then, of course, I got uh, connected with Frady Reese at Unchained at Last. So she herself is a survivor, and she founded Unchained at Last, and she is just an amazing force of nature and an incredible person. And she was also really helpful uh, on that front, too, and really, yeah. Um, I mean, I talked to a number of survivors and then basically narrowed it down to the, the three we have in the film based on factors like do you feel comfortable, you know, being on film, like us seeing your face, do you feel comfortable with what 
is being shared, understanding that it's once it's out there, I mean, it's out there for good, that kind of thing. So there were a lot of conversations around that a lot before we ever picked up a camera. Wow. And thank you to those women that participated because that is a big deal. That's yeah. incredible. And kudos to you for getting there, for earning their trust. That That's the piece that I'm always that I always come back to, that I always think about. And it's also what carried me through the rough moments of making the film is that was always the most important thing to me is that they have trusted me with their incredibly intimate, incredibly difficult, but also very powerful stories. Holy shit, this has got to be good. <laughs> we have to get this out there. So there were plenty of moments throughout where, you know, we were like applying for grants and then didn't get it and then applying for more grants and didn't get it. Like, oh, well, keep filming, just keep moving, just keep pushing forward. And there were there were days or weeks where I would just um, curl up in a ball on the floor crying for, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't crying for, for a week straight, but I mean, you know, it was sort of like, you know, an everyday yeah. occurrence just overwhelmed and trying to figure out how the hell to take the next step. And that's what I kept coming back to is like, they have trusted me with this. I cannot let them down. And everyone on my team was working for, I mean, either basically nothing or nothing at one point or another or for almost the entirety of it. So yeah, I owed it to them. I owed it to the survivors. So I, there's a certain amount of uh, that pressure that is very helpful in, in motivating oneself to get up off the floor wipe your fucking tears and just do your job. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge responsibility. How long did it take you to make the film? I guess I'm really curious about just the process between grant, like applying for grants and making it. Where did this take you exactly? Uh, well, it's been four years. Um, yeah, I think we started in late 2016. Yeah, I think we our first shoot was December 2016. So... Um, yeah, and we didn't get any grants. I mean, we just, <laughs> I really wanted to get things rolling right away. So I was like, I'm going to dump my savings into this and we're going to have a ball. Um, and then those went really quickly, <laughs> yeah. much faster than I realized. And I was like, oh dear, we're out of money, but we're already shooting. So we have to keep it going somehow. Um, I honestly, uh, I've sort of entered a fugue state at different points where I'm like I don't even remember how we got <laughs> through certain points but yeah um it was it was a process that we started in late 2016 and then we um officially like had our uh final cut locked in November 2019 and then we um did some additional post work. So I think the final film ultimately in its current state was delivered in February, 2020. Mm -hmm. Did your move from DC to the Omaha area affect your uh, filmmaking process? It did. I mean, for knots, but also just in general, it really invigorated me in a lot of different ways. It was sort of this breath of fresh air and I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anyone here, but the community really just welcomed me with open arms. And also there's something about just being in a different place and in a new place yeah. that for me, I find creatively really invigorating. So it kind of breathed new life uh, for me into the the whole process of knots. And then I also made, met some amazing people in this community mm -hmm. and in the filmmaking community in particular who were just awesome. Michael Hennings being the very first person who responded to any of my cold emails. Cause when I got here, I just looked up some production companies and sent a, a bunch of emails saying, hi, my <laughs> name is Kate. I just moved here. Here's my resume. Do you want to have coffee? <laughs> I Michael's did it in, gem. in that in that voice too. Oh, of course, naturally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Michael responded. We had coffee, and then he connected me with a bunch of people, and we now have a great working relationship. And he ended up shooting a lot of the B roll for Knots, which was fantastic. So yeah, just for Knots and beyond, Omaha has been an amazing 
community here. And I have so many ideas and people I want to collaborate with <laughs> and people I am collaborating with. Wink, wink. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been rad and really energizing. And I feel like I'm in this whole amazing new phase in my life and career and just so happy to be here for it because I think being here was an instrumental part of that. Wow. That's really cool. Go Omaha and go Kate. And go Night Owl. I mean, when you first got here, you told us a really sweet story about how the staff at Night Owl helped you out. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so when we first got here, we had a very short period of time in which to find a house and presumably move in. And of course, we managed to find a house really quickly, but we had to wait a, a while before we moved in. And in the meantime, we had discovered Night Owl through a recommendation from an amazing server over at Dario's. And we were basically just living there, too, because we were like, oh, they have great There's a drink. coffee shop next door. Just plug in, have your laptop. It's great. Coffee? Oh, no. We went straight for the booze. Yeah. I was like, is it 3.30 yet? Is it open? Okay, great. Understandable. Let's, let's go work out all of our, <laughs> let's go work out all of our stuff at Night Owl. Um, but yeah, so we, we met uh, amazing people there, Monica and Marcy. And before we even really got to know them that well, I, I think Marcy heard us, you know, groaning about how we were trying to find a place to stay while we waited to move into our house. And she offered up, she was like, well, I mean, I'm kind of hardly ever at my apartment and it's right across the street if you want to stay there for a little while. And we sort of looked at each other and we're like, seriously? I mean, you, you, you just met us. <laughs> I mean, we're us your keys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, we'll be good to you. Like, we're, we'll be fine. But really, are you sure? Are you sure about this? And like yeah yeah that's fine <laughs> so that's we wild. ended up staying at marcy's for a little while while we were first here which i'm like still waiting to find an opportunity to repay her i feel like i'm never going to be able to repay her that kindness and that trust um and that faith <laughs> in someone that she really just met so i mean that was really our first introduction to omaha and after that, I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, this place is, this place is awesome. <laughs> yeah, talk about an open arms welcome. <laughs> yeah, no truly. kidding. Yeah. How long did you end up staying at her place? Um, I don't remember. I remember it was at least, I think, a week or something. Wow. Or six days or five, I don't know. Wow. Again, with the numbers, sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, my memory is very clear on certain details, but then when it comes to like length or duration of time, I mean, in general, I mean, ask me what I did yesterday and I'm going to have to take a minute to be able to tell you. So <laughs> It's okay, we have time. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure it was incredibly creative. <laughs> what I did yesterday? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that it was. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're creating every day. Oh. Well, creating burps, maybe. <laughs> That's I did, creating. I did that. <laughs> what does your creative process look like at home right now during COVID? Because obviously, I mean, you came back right um, from Manchester, like the midst of all these shutdowns in Omaha. So have you been able to find, a, I don't know, a comfortable place to start writing again? Or have you given yourself a break? Well, I took a a break right when I got back from Manchester because I felt like I'd been running nonstop for four years. And also when I got back, I felt really ill <laughs> and I had major head congestion. I didn't have a fever or a cough, but I completely lost my sense of taste and smell for 10 days. And, and that's for a woman that loves wine. That is not a good place to be. <laughs> I was a little disturbed at how much I am motivated by food. I discovered that I am 99% motivated by food. <laughs> I was really depressed. I was taking naps all the time. I felt like eating was a chore. I mean, again, this is coming from a very cushy, privileged place. I completely recognize that. I was just a little disappointed in myself that I'm that motivated by food. But fortunately, you know, whatever that was, if it was COVID, it was um, very mild me but I'm still waiting to be able to get an antibody test and find out so during those two weeks I took a break and then after that I kind of slowly ramped back up mm -hmm. to doing things and um, so now I'm kind of at full speed again 
even, I mean, I was working from home most of the time anyway, so that, that part of it hasn't changed a whole lot. Are you working on any projects right now you can tell us about? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Baby burp. I couldn't resist. <laughs> Just to clarify, well, listeners, that was a burp. I'll have to, I'll have to cut that out. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> Please don't cut that out. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yes, projects that I'm working on right now. I am a responsible professional. Um, actually, one I'm really excited about and um, is fairly new is a collaboration with Gary Clark, who I um, met while I was doing or getting ready for the TED Talk last year because he also did an incredible TED Talk. He wrote an uh, autobiography about his experience growing up called Unlikely Viking, about like growing up in DC and then uh, getting a scholarship out moving to kind of rural Nebraska. And it was about, I don't know, midnight, uh, couple weeks ago and I was probably a whole bottle of wine in and intended to just watch a show and go to bed and I sort of got thinking my friends and I have been doing this sort of socially distanced filmmaking just for fun over the last few weeks so I will write a short something whether it's a poem or a monologue or whatever record it on my phone send it to my cinematographer Jasmine she shoots whatever visuals she feels inspired by and then we send both of those things to our amazing editor Darman and she cuts it together into a film so we we've got a couple of these in the works but this other night when I was up drinking it occurred to me oh we we already have this sort of system worked out we have this platform we should give it to someone else. We should th this is a time where other voices need to be heard. So I contacted Gary Again, I think it was like 12 or 12.30 a.m. Um, on a Tuesday or something random like that. And I was like, Gary, Gary, um, explained in a text message this whole process of what we've been doing with the filmmaking and said, hey, look, um, the world doesn't need my voice right now, but it, it really could use yours if you would be interested in writing a uh, poem because he's amazing with spoken word and, and his poetry. And he was on board within a couple of days he wrote the most incredible poem called eight minutes 46 seconds and it just it gives me chills even just thinking about it um and so we have been collaborating and uh, gary is co-producing and co-directing this project to invite visuals from uh, a few different cinematographers in miami la new york and um, we're working in collaboration with several people to get it edited. And so that's, that's the project I'm, I'm really, really passionate about right now. Uh, we actually just filmed yesterday, no, two days ago um, at James Scurlock's um, mural, the memorial mural. And, um, you know, we uh, filmed Gary performing his poem and invited, he invited um, members of the community or anyone who wanted to show up and be represented on film as part of the visuals. So we basically did visual portraits for people who wanted to participate. Um, and so those visuals will be cut into the film while we hear and see Gary performing this incredibly powerful poem. So oh. that is what I am really passionate about right now. And that should be done also fairly soon. So for those that are unfamiliar awesome. with um, James Scurlock, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of filming these in front of his like memorial portrait? Absolutely. So James Scurlock is a hero. He is an incredible young man who tragically and horrifically was murdered uh, recently during one of the protests here in Omaha by a well-known racist homophobe. And that the man who murdered him was let go without any charges being brought against him, which is a heinous and horrible injustice that still needs to be 
corrected. There are so many of them, but here in this community, I, I know that there are lots of people hurting from the murder of James and from the lack of justice um, and the lack of respect that's been shown for his heroism. So there's a really beautiful, uh, really powerful mural. Uh, I believe it's 24th and Camden. And it was the site of a uh, vigil um, arranged by James's family. And so shooting in front of it, filming Gary speaking in front of it, was uh, significant both for trying to honor James's life, um, but also honor the experiences of all of all the people who have gone through and faced all of this injustice and who continue to do so every single day and have to do so every single day. I get really, I get really um, uncomfortable sort of feeling like I'm, I'm really not the person to talk about this. This is not my lived experience. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's for others to, to share their lived experience and we really need to listen to them. But um, that's, so I mean, Gary would be a great person to talk to. There are, there are a lot of great people. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the significance of filming in, in, in front of there and we were really um, humbled and honored to be, you know, sharing that space and be welcomed into that space, um, especially as as a white woman, I'm very conscientious of that that privilege, and I, I don't want to take up that space um, where where it would negatively impact anyone. So, when will this be available? I'm not entirely sure. We're we're aiming within the next week and a half or so. So by the time this episode's out, I'll make sure to link it so you guys can find it. But I'm very much looking forward to watching it. Thank you for doing that. Oh no, it's <laughs> it's team. It's thank yeah. your team it's for doing that. Yeah, Gary is just the the creative force behind this. I'm just uh, here to help, you know, make those connections. So from this, let's transition into something that I know you have authority to talk about. Okay, which is. <laughs> Horror films yes. from a female gaze. Oh, yes. Let's get you fired up. I'm ready for this conversation. This is one of my favorite topics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we were having a conversation the other day um, with Kate about our favorite films. We were talking about Midsommar and just how powerful of a movie that was for us to watch as women um, and to <laughs> not be seen as like the typical trope um, of just helpless and confused um so yeah let's let's dive into that a little bit um i'd love to hear your opinions about a classic woman in a horror film (laughs) yeah so the classic woman in a horror film apparently (laughs) sleeps in a thong and very uncomfortable negligee i don't know we all do right which (laughs) 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 i I hate to break it to you but i burst this bubble (laughs) yeah we don't sleep in thongs (laughs) Maybe there are some, and if you do, that's totally cool. I just, uh, I know I don't tend to sleep in uh, super lacy underwear that chafes my ass, so. You know. What a surprise. Right? Um, yeah, also, we apparently don't know what to do with our limbs when we run. Never. Um, I like yeah. to flail about as much as possible. Yeah, maximum flailage. Um, also, you know, full makeup, going to bed, mm-hmm. right? Always. Yeah. If but Fran Drescher I, taught me anything, it's you go to bed with diamonds in your ears, a full face of makeup. Definitely. Right. Yeah, I, I wash my face and then reapply my makeup. <laughs> it's perfect. Right? Right before I strap on that thong. <laughs> yes. Strap, strap on. on. <laughs> That's probably the wrong terminology. <laughs> As you can tell, we do not wear these garments. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, um, and also we have no concept of protecting ourselves with a sensible weapon or, you know, uh, running out the door or really making any sensible decisions whatsoever. And our bodies exist to be gazed at. Mm-hmm. And, oh, how did this turn to we? Oh, my gosh. I thought we were talking about a trope. Oh, man. <laughs> I just freuded myself. What happened? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, wanting wanting to identify with a, a female character in a horror film. What? <laughs> yeah, so uh, clearly I have very strong feelings about how women have often been, uh, more often than not, been represented, particularly in horror films, either as a sex object, you know, just one-dimensional character there as an appendage to, you know, further the plot line by getting murdered or... You know, any number of things or further the plot line by making some stupid decision that then propels, you know, the other main characters into whatever they're going to do next. Um, and that's not to say there isn't room for, you know, some like good sexy underwear in horror films. There absolutely is. I just you you definitely feel the difference watching it when you are watching a trope mm-hmm. versus like you feel almost dehumanized yeah, versus absolutely. watching a really interesting, um, you know, well-fleshed out character like Ripley. <laughs> I and often find that when I'm in other people's company and they want to watch a horror film, I get pulled out of it immediately. It's so difficult for me to focus. And more often than not, it's always probably a well-intentioned male wanting to be like, oh, look at this. This is such a great film. And then I start watching it. And I'm like, oh, of course you think this is a great film. So um, what are some good examples uh, that the listeners can, like, hopefully look into um, that show, like, what it's like to have females part of the critical team behind the creation of these movies? Well, I would definitely go back to Raw. Again, if you haven't seen Raw, that's a fantastic one. And I also don't think that you have to be female identifying to be able to create a horror movie from the female gaze. Like I think Midsummer did a really great job of mm-hmm. that. I think there are other movies like The Witch, which also mm-hmm. did an incredible job, or even uh, It Follows does a really, really good job of that. So I would, I would have to do a lot more research into finding those movies that are primarily a female team because they're out there. They just are harder to find because they don't get as much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, I think there are a lot of them on the festival circuit, and there are a lot of women who are interested in making awesome horror. Mm-hmm. So it is about just seeking out your interest in those areas. Um, yeah, that's a good question, and I, <laughs> I really need to do more research on it myself. Can I ask you a question about screaming? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's my you're always welcome josh <laughs> yeah so i think scream is an interesting one scream was one of the i mean quintessential what was it 90s at this point yeah quintessential 90s horror movies that had a lot of these tropes in there but then was also a little bit satirical of them so i think the first time I watched Scream, I wasn't really into horror movies. I would just queasy the whole time <laughs> um, because I was really scared. But watching it later, I think it definitely has its place in starting to address those issues from a level of satire. Now, I don't know that everyone would agree with me. Probably not. But um, I agree. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that's- Exactly. Um, that's that's one thing I love about any movie, but especially horror movies, is mm-hmm. give me a main character who is going to do everything right and still just get fucked. Like, yes. that. that's, <laughs> that's good. Because then you feel like, oh, I can really identify with this person. I understand why they're making that decision. That's smart. I would have done that. Oh, shit. Still not enough. <laughs> Chills. So, <laughs> What's your response to critics who typically kind of look at horror as being a throwaway genre? I say let them. I mean, I think the interest in it speaks for itself. I think that the the fact that horror is sometimes devalued as a lesser genre or, quote, not a serious genre Mm -hmm. uh, really allows it to be a fertile playground for a ton of interesting ideas and Mm -hmm. satire and social commentary. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are certain films, especially like Jordan Peele's uh, Us and Get Out, 
that are starting to change that paradigm. Mm -hmm. But I, I really don't mind it because I, I just kind of feel like, well, you know, there's a huge appetite for it anyway, and people are really into it. Mm -hmm. And because it maybe doesn't get treated in that same way, there's a lot you can do with it. There's a lot of room to play there, which I very much enjoy. So how do you spin this into Murder King? Let's talk about Murder King. Right. So I got the idea for Murder King. It was actually a short story to begin with. Um, I was on the treadmill one day, which is a rare occurrence <laughs> for me. And I was hating it so much that I was trying to distract myself from how much I was hating being on the treadmill. I wasn't even running. I was just walking. Um, so I started thinking about, well, what would love letters from a serial killer look like and sound like? And then while I was on the treadmill walking very slowly, I started writing them out on my phone. And I turned those series of letters into a short story called The Murder King, which got published by uh, the UK online magazine, Storgy Magazine, uh, which is super cool, especially like if you love short stories of all kinds of genres, Storgy's an incredible resource for that. Um, and I say that not just because I, I got published there, but it definitely <laughs> helps. <laughs> um, so then after that, I um, had the idea. I think the Prairie Film Festival ha was having a horror challenge. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I don't really know anyone here yet, but still, maybe I can just turn this into something on my iPhone or whatever. And then, unfortunately, like I didn't make the deadline for the, um, the film festival challenge, um, you know, let them know well ahead of time because it started turning into something a little bit bigger. It started turning into sort of a proper short film where I teamed up with Michael Hennings, who mm -hmm. creative produced it, and Greg Lilly, who was the producer behind it, both amazing people, and uh, basically sat down with them at a restaurant one day and I was like, hey guys, I know you don't know me that well, but I've got an idea for a short horror film. You want to make it? I have no money. <laughs> what a pitch. What a great pitch. I know, right? <laughs> I but it worked. Somehow. That's the astounding part to me. Yeah. Um, I definitely need to get better at pitching. But <laughs> well, um, it sounds like you did it perfectly. I think oh. you have enough energy where people just can tell <laughs> that this is a good project to like it lean into. As long as I just bounce while I talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we ended up doing a really tiny um, Indiegogo campaign, raised 1800 bucks. Um, so thank you to everybody who contributed. <laughs> I just managed to get all the posters and DVDs out the other day. Ooh, um, nice. Yeah, and then with that, we made this short film over a period of two days in the absolute frigid cold with an amazing tight-knit team, including uh, cinematographer Brent Scott Mays, who just uh, is just recently wrapped up with his brother, the film La Flamme Rouge, which is a psychological horror, and I'm also super excited to see it. Um, yes. Yeah, so we just so excited. Yeah, we had this great team that came together to make this, and I hadn't really thought about turning it into anything else until it was done. And then the characters still kind of stayed with me, and then built into something bigger. So that process sort of happened organically, where I just uh, now I'm on the second draft of the feature, and I'm gonna I'm working on getting it. Yeah. Um, made, I guess is the right word. I'm like, there are probably other technical terms for where we are in the process, but yeah, we're, yeah, working to get the Murder King made. But um, one of the things I love about it is the main character is such an interesting, complex character. And in the feature version of the Murder King, but I think you also get this in the short, like mm -hmm. you kind of don't know whether she's an unreliable narrator or not, so to speak. No, um, not at all. Yeah, but like, yeah, I I love the idea of um, just inviting someone, like inviting the audience into a character's experience, and so I feel like that can be a that in in some ways is also really helpful when you're thinking about how to approach horror from a female gaze. Is like how do you invite the audience into that experience, and instead of just like being mm -hmm. separate and I'm just watching you mm -hmm. do whatever you do, kind of thing. So this, the short uh, was shown here in Omaha uh, during a little film festival in, was that in February? That was in March. Early March, okay. Uh, what are your plans for, or are like, what are your plans for showing that short in the, in the future or? 
That's a great question. I have no idea. I, <laughs> I often think that I need to think more strategically about just about everything. And then I get another idea for something and I'm like, woo, let's just go make it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, I was really excited to have the Murder King premiered at the Omaha Film Festival this year. It was fantastic. And to be able to share that experience with the community was just awesome. It was so sad to miss it. But I mean, now, especially given that other festivals around the world are either canceled or gone online or are all being postponed, I'm kind of just looking at, I don't know, let's just figure out, you know, getting it out there because it's fun. I just want to share it with people. What is the festival process look like for you? Um, I know we mentioned earlier that you were at the Manchester Film Festival. What does it feel like to be recognized uh, for, I mean, putting so much hard work and like money? <laughs> There's so many factors go into creating this. So what is it like to actually get to celebrate it with those around you? Uh, being able to celebrate it with my team and the survivors was indescribable. Uh, it's been such a long and difficult process, not just for me, but for everyone on my team, but especially for these women who, again, trusted me with their stories, bared their souls, and then now have to wait this arduously long time to see what happens with it. Does this turn out in the way that I feel respected? That Like, how is this going to get out there? You know what I mean? That, that process... Um, and obviously they have their own lives and tons of stuff going on in their own lives in the meantime, but I'm not unaware of how um, emotionally taxing I, uh, that, that probably was as well. So being able to share it with them and see the audience responses, just the shock and the outrage and the horror and the this energy to change things, that was massive that was huge um and i and i hope it feels good for everyone on my team too and and all the survivors because they they deserve all all of that and more that's so wonderful yeah so not also it was also in the omaha film festival i had the privilege of watching both knots and murder king um, in theater during that festival. And what you just said about the audience, watching the audience absorb what you have created in Knots is so powerful. It is incredible. Um, it, it, like that the whole room was transformed. And it is such a powerful story that I don't, that I think like you in the beginning, so many people have no idea that this is going on. Yeah, I mean, and that's the whole, that was the whole impetus for making it. I still uh, sweat and shake the entire time when I'm screening it for, I mean, with an audience because I'm, I feel so protective over how Nina, Sara, and Frady have been so brave to share their story that I only want best sort of response from the audience so I get so nervous every time I mean I know they've faced so much more in their lives but I still get nervous and so to see that sort of response and in Manchester it was very similar the people were a little bit more aware of forced and child marriage being an issue but they had no idea it was happening in the United States they were sort of aware of it in the UK but not in the US whatsoever so and to see that emotional response from people of all ages and all backgrounds and all genders, that being a really galvanizing moment means everything. I mean, yeah. What are your plans going forward with knots? So we're just gonna try and get it out there to as many people as possible because there are lots of bills being introduced mm -hmm. in different states or there's the there's the potential to introduce bills in different states to finally end child marriage which seems like it would be a pretty simple thing we can all agree on but you'd be surprised at how much pushback um like maryland for example has failed to pass a bill several times there is a little bit of good news that minnesota and pennsylvania 
just became uh, two more states recently to end child marriage, like age 18, no exceptions. So now there are four states total. That's okay. Min- Minnesota, Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware, Delaware, and New Jersey have ended child marriage, but there are 46 to go. So our plan is really just to figure out some kind of distribution that makes sense where we just yeah. get it out there to as many people as possible, partner with uh, organizations across the country, and just get this changed. And I know, um, you know, Nina, Sara, and Frady, and especially Frady at Unchain at Last, They've been on the front lines of this for so much longer, um, you know, than I have just coming along with my camera. And <laughs> but not, it's not even my camera. It was, <laughs> it was a camera we rented, and then Jasmine very skillfully um, handled that camera and just about everything else we needed for the shoot. But, yeah, that's our plan is just get it out there and help make some change in this movement. Can you mention a few organizations right now that we can look into and promote better? Helping with us? Yeah, maybe tell us a little bit too about Freddy's Unchained. Yeah, okay, so Freddy Reese uh, is, like I said, a firecracker of a person, an incredible woman. Um, and there, <laughs> so she not only survived a forced marriage um, when she was 19 in New York City in the ultra Orthodox Jewish community. But um, after she escaped, she managed to start a nonprofit, Unchained at Last, specifically to help women and girls, um, more than women and girls, any individual of any uh, gender or background that is facing forced and child marriage here in the United States. So she has been pounding the pavement for years, doing interviews, um, being on the front lines, working directly with survivors, not just survivors, but um, individuals who call in asking for help, uh, working to change the laws. Um, so she is everywhere. <laughs> um, I asked her once, actu- actually, like, if she has time to sleep. Like, <laughs> it's a valid she question. She sleeps at all, because she's also an, uh, an avid runner, so she runs every single day. Um, but yeah, so she's incredible. Uh, they have unchainedatlast.org has a lot of really good resources uh, that lay out what's going on with with forced and child marriage in the United States. So there's also an organization in California called Global Hope 365 that is working specifically to end child marriage in California. And I know they, um, you know, they've been talking with Sara as well from the film, and Sara is an incredible advocate. She's been working really hard to bring awareness, raise awareness, but then also get the laws changed. What does it look like here in Nebraska? So that's a good question. Here in Nebraska, I believe it's um, minimum age 17, but okay. also there was, I'm unclear as to whether someone automatically becomes an emancipated minor mm. when they marry or if that's something that you have to apply for or not. Okay. I'm, and I'm also confused as to what that means with the age of majority being 19. <laughs> right. So the Nebraska is generally a confusing state when, when it comes to child marriage, oh. and I'm not sure where things stand. I've actually... I feel like this is just Nebraska as a whole. <laughs> I, 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 I went down a Google whirlpool one day and looking at laws and statutes and then looking at all of these little exceptions or caveats and I ended up ended up just super confused (laughs) cool yeah (laughs) so uh, I'll get back to you on that good bit of clarity Um, here in Nebraska thank you do you have any states that you feel like are kind of ripe for change right now or well I know that there's an organization called Zonta International that is working on ending child marriage and that specifically looking at Arizona and really identifying what needs to, what resources are going to be useful to make that change in Arizona. So um, I know they're on the ground trying to figure out how to get the public really on board with this. And a lot of, a lot of that is education. Um, There are, there's a lot of work being done that Mm -hmm. I'm just fully unaware of. I would, I would really look at both uh, Unchained at Last and uh, even uh, Tahiri Justice Center 
for references in terms of yeah what's going on in in the United States with forced and child marriage. I, I will say that there's a shitload of work to be done. What can the average citizen do to help? Um, well, for one thing, um, listen to survivors. That it's probably a first step is to read read through their stories and just seek out an understanding of the complexity of this issue and why it's so important that we end forced and child marriage. Um, because I think once people can understand that and internalize that, like people are way more energized to make a difference. But then also contact your state senators. This is the kind of thing that um, it would be great to happen at a federal level. That's not happening. So, you know, we need to go state by state. So look at what is happening in your state. What are the laws? What are the loopholes and exceptions in your state? Talk to people around you and see if you can get a group together to contact your local state senators, really bring this to their attention and bring it to their attention in terms of why and how this is severely harming the children of America. Have you had any luck in Nebraska or Iowa in, in connecting with lawmakers on this change? So that's a good question. That's something that I am a little cautious about inserting myself into, but then also as a concerned citizen, I feel like I've, I've got a responsibility to do that. So there, are, I am trying to work on a few different angles for how to approach this both. I mean, I live in Iowa in Council Bluffs, so... Um, I, I know that this is something that needs to change in Iowa as well. So kind of working on it on two different levels. But then, of course, I always look to Frady because she has been fighting this fight forever. So I always defer to her experience <laughs> with this. Um, yeah. So I guess the short answer is, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, and also uh, trying to be smart about how we approach this. Kate, can you tell us a little bit about um, your public versus private persona? Yeah, so my public and private persona are pretty similar, although I am terrible at social media. So there's probably just a little bit less <laughs> of me publicly <laughs> than, you know, day to day. And I think um, my private persona sings a lot more random goofy songs and does a lot more voices than my public persona because I'm not sure how well that would go over in a very serious conversation about something like child marriage and you know yeah so okay so when it comes to my public persona I'm I'm highly conscientious that there are a lot of issues that I care deeply about that um don't necessarily benefit from me being, you know, just really weird. <laughs> yeah, I think privately I'm just a lot weirder, but um, I really do care about so much. And so I want to be as well-spoken as possible, or I want to, um, you know, represent an issue I care about well. And I still fuck it up. I mean, I still mess up plenty of times and I'm going to continue to mess it up. And I just have to continue to learn how to listen and um you know be a better advocate and ally and that's it's just a process it's one of those things that is a journey that it's going to be my whole life it's the beauty of it <laughs> thank you well unfortunately we're wrapping up but i'd love to take the opportunity to have you give a little gratitude to those that you love or promote anything else that you've been working on? Oh my gosh. So much love to everyone in <laughs> Omaha. I mean, we would be here for an hour just like <laughs> if I were naming names of everyone I love and adore here. We can do an episode too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just write them all down. <laughs> Go really fast. <laughs> but I also just want to thank Nina, Sarah, and Frady and Knotts. I want to thank Gary for his incredible words um, in this um poem, eight minutes, 46 seconds. That will be coming out soon. I want to thank all my friends around the world. I want to thank 
all of you here. It's an honor to be here. And I love you. I, I, I just, you. I love you all so much. And I want to thank my parents because that feels appropriate. <laughs> and I'm here because of them. Because, Hi, Mom and Dad. Because they did some dirty stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. God, I'm, I love you so, so much. I'm, I'm a whole you family. I love fantastic. my brothers. <laughs> you are fantastic. And I love my brothers. I love so many people. Every, thank you. And your husband, love Ben. You. And my husband, <laughs> I love my husband, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Well, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing and Thank being you. with us. This is such a treat. And we'll have to get out a bottle of French Malbec and enjoy that together very soon. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, it's what we do best. As long as I can drink out of the horn, I'm there. Yeah, absolutely. Can we watch a cannibal film too? Uh, yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> well, okay. we'll work on Maybe. Leslie. We'll get there. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. the brilliant things that Kate is working on. You can find her at kdbrewer.com. And if you'd like to look more into Knots the Film, you can find the trailer at knotsthefilm.com. Or for more information, you can visit their Instagram at knotsthefilm. Thank you for listening to What's Her Face. We are a figure podcast produced by Joshua LeBure. Find us on Instagram at What's Her Face Podcast or visit figurepodcast.com for our other shows.